0: As part of our series, Christ in the Old Testament, it is perfectly natural for us to include, quite early on, the first of the promises concerning him. Uh, Genesis 3, our text of this evening, uh, will provide that very thing in verse 15. We have there the one to come. Uh, The one that is to crush the head of the serpents. Uh, Now, of course, that's a theme that is uh, kind of developed throughout the whole of the Old Testament. This person who is promised, we see him being prophesied about. So that in actual fact, we begin to wonder how it is possible for anyone to fail to see that Jesus Christ is the answer. How they could fail to see him when he came as a man and lived and ministered and died just as foretold. In any event, it is here in this early chapter that the first indication that God would come as a man, as a saviour, as the one to crush sin and death first appears. However, we will do well to note that verse... Uh, that verse 15, that promise of the, the one that crushes the snake's head. But as I was saying uh, when we kicked off this whole series, every part of the Old Testament tells us about God. When we look closely, we see Christ actually being very active in this chapter. In fact, he's much more active than we may have thought. It's not as if Jesus, having been intimately involved in creation, sat for a few millennia waiting for his turn. He is still intimately involved with his creation from the beginning. And so uh, there are a number of occasions that he comes and speaks to men and women. There are a number of times that his role as saviour comes to the fore as he rescues his people. There are a number of precious moments where we see who he is long before he is born in Bethlehem. And so whilst he is promised, he is also active in this chapter. So, let us turn to our reading uh, this evening, found in the third chapter of Genesis, and starting with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. And Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, "'Till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return.' So the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And Yahweh God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then Yahweh God said, "'Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand, and also take of the tree of life, and eat and live forever.' Therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken." He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned each and every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Now, Genesis 3 is important. One of the main reasons that it is important is that we no longer live in the garden. Instead, we live every single minute of every day with the consequences of the fall. And so, as we look through this chapter, I believe that uh, the cause of the fall, the consequences from the fall, and the hope, despite the fall, here given in some sort of embryonic form, is really worth looking at. Uh, Because especially, I I think they are worth looking at, because in each of them we see the grace of God being revealed, and ultimately, they reveal Jesus Christ. Now, as you'll appreciate, chapter 3 it comes after chapters one and two. Uh, there's always some difficulty when you start in the third chapter of a narrative. Uh, we can actually overlook some of the key elements that have been there in the build-up. Now, specifically, at the outset, we have Yahweh God uh, in the text, Yahweh Elohim, uh, uh, Yahweh, which is the personal name of God. It's why I insist on on, on reading it out, um, as Willie mentioned this morning. You know, I can kind of insist on mentioning Yahweh. Because that is his name. And it tells us that this is someone who is ready and open and willing for a relationship. Someone who is willing to be known. And that is a very powerful thing. And his name and the title Elohim, it means God of gods. It's a, a title which talks of power and sovereignty, the creator of heaven and earth. Well, this Lord God, as it's often said, uh, he creates everything and it's perfect it is just so and at the pinnacle of this creation man and woman both made in his image well they're given the task of working the garden they have the joy of walking with him in the evening i mean he walked with them (laughs) i said it's amazing There, in the garden, God comes and walks with them. He meets with them. He speaks with them. Now, there's lots of fancy words and fancy titles to describe the moments when God comes and interacts with men. Um, We sometimes have them described as theophanies or Christophanies. The the whole point is that the second person of the Trinity was active long before he was born in Bethlehem. Often described as the pre-incarnate Christ, we have Here, uh, all these terms to try and say that Jesus Christ was involved with his creation long before he was born. He walks with Adam and Eve. He will talk with Moses face to face. He will stand with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that furnace. The one who walks here in the earliest moments in Genesis is the one who in the Gospels will walk on those roads between Bethlehem and Galilee. In fact, he'll go along the shore of Galilee. He'll climb the Mount of Olives. He is the same one. And this one who is promised. Promised in Ezekiel 37 or First Thessalonians 4 or Revelation 21. The one that is promised to come again in glory and dwell with us. So when it comes to finding Christ in the Old Testament, we don't actually have to go very far to find him as he walks here in the garden, the garden that he made. Remember, as we're told in Colossians 1, 16, for by him all things were created. And when he was done, everything was good. Everything was just so. Everything was perfect. And it's into that perfection that we have chapter 3. Ruining everything. Now, we don't know how long it was after creation uh, that this occurs. It could have been days or years. That's not really the important point. The point is that humanity acts in direct rebellion to the God who breathed life into them. The point is that humanity broke everything, and we have been living with the consequences ever since. The point is that into this perfection we bring sin, death, death, suffering, and separation from the God who loved us, and all because mankind thought, well, actually, we should be God. That's the cause. Outlined for us in verses 1 to 6 of our text. Now, verse 1 here of our passage presents the villain of the peace, the serpent. Now, he is quite different from the snakes that I have so far encountered. Um, I do not know about you, but if a snake started talking to me, I would be somewhat surprised. I believe that the fact that Eve has no obvious startlement or reaction, I believe this shows us some of what we have lost in the fall. To her, it is a normal event. And so she enters into discourse with the snake as if it was the most natural thing in the world. But the snake brings with him a question uh, that a a certain resonance in his hearers. Did God really say? No longer Yahweh Elohim. No longer the personal name alongside that title God of gods. No longer the name that tells you of this loving relationship of care and love. Now, devoid of that, we have a gap. We have a distance being inserted between the mighty one and his creation now it is just the title god and into that gap comes the question did he really say now it's been a constant refrain in our hearts ever since wishing to be the one who decides well did he really say Whenever we find ourselves thwarted in an action we wish to do or prevented from doing something that our heart desires because God said no, every time we embrace a sin that we know is an affront to the Holy One, we find ourselves asking this question. No longer acknowledging the personal God who looks out for our welfare, we replace him with the dictator who tells us what to do. And yet, conversely, his commands are reduced. At the command of of, do not eat that fruit in two sixteen. It's replaced with Did he say? Did God suggest? We open up that gap and we ask ourselves, would God really mind if does the Bible really say wouldn't God say something different nowadays? It's interesting though how the woman responds in verses two to three because it's not accurate not an accurate portrayal of what God said, the command that had been given is now seen as something much more severe, something quite unreasonable, God the dictator. Apparently it says you cannot even touch the tree. So in this conversation we see Yahweh Elohim being reduced, the command's becoming something simply said, and this is the beginning of the fall. The fall is more than just the fruit. Eating the fruit is the final act in the fall. There's something going on here, something much more serious than some sort of petty fruit larceny. This growing rebellion against God is perfectly described in verses 4 and 5. For anyone who thought it was just taking the fruit that was the issue, look again. Look at what the temptation actually is. Having dismissed the consequence of death... The temptation, the sin that is committed is laid bare. It's not the fruit in and of itself, but rather as we see in verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The deception of the serpent is absolute because what he promises is untrue. The action will cause their deaths and they will not be like God they will not have the, uh, the yadah that is mentioned here, the, the, the Hebrew word yadah uh, here, quite important, uh, because we translate it as knowledge. But yadah is, is, is a bigger word. And I think just simply knowledge could be slightly misunderstood. This is not some sort of progress, gaining a piece of understanding or information. They already know what is good and what is not. They already know not to eat the fruit. What we have here is an inward possession of good and evil, which alongside being described as being like God, it it, it really says you can be the one who decides what is good and what is evil. That's why it's a rebellion. (laughs) It's a stark rejection of the authority of God as the one who decides these things. And instead, mankind will take with their hands the things that belong to God alone. And we will forever think that we can decide right from wrong, regardless of what God says on the matter. It's a rebellion against the one who said, creation is very good. When God said it was perfect, they've decided, actually, no, it's not. There is something else that we need. There is something else that would make it perfect, and we are going to take it. We're going to seize it. We'll make it right. And so they do. They go and they seize the fruit. I say they, um, uh, it's not all on the woman. In verse 6, it's quite important. Uh, It can be overlooked. It says that Adam was with her. I suppose in English, uh, this is the first time that Adam is referred to in the discussion, and it could be misunderstood. It could be misunderstood. We could say, well, he's not really a party to the discussion. Maybe he just turns up late to the conversation. Uh, Perhaps we mean it in a more general sense. Like I might say that I am with my wife, Mary, even though she's at home just now with the kids. That's not what's intended here. I'm afraid uh, any attempt by men to excuse ourselves from the blame is unwarranted. And in actual fact, again, the Hebrew is quite helpful here because uh, the the Hebrew text from the opening speech of the serpent tells us that Adam is there. The reason we know this is that uh, he is speaking, first of all, in the plural, which tells us there's more than one person and there's a very small pool of people. The second thing is he's speaking in the masculine and if you've got a mixed group of men and women it would be in the masculine form. From the very first word the snake utters out of his mouth you know that Adam and Eve are standing right there. It's an important point because Adam does nothing. The one who we know for a fact heard the words from God himself says nothing. Nothing. He just leaves his wife to respond. He does not intervene in any way whatsoever. And so the pair of them are there when they take the fruit. And of course, that's the cause, but there are consequences to the fall. Uh, Verses 7-9 show the immediate consequences of the rebellion. Firstly, the eyes are opened, and all this great knowledge, this supposed elevation to the status of God, actually results in a shame of their nakedness an ends to the perfect openness that they had to each other. Um, the, 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 again, the, the term is not just meant to say just that they were physically naked, but that there was an openness to each other which we have never had again. And they hide. They have this pathetic covering of leaves and they cower in the bushes when they hear God arrive. There are heartbreaking consequences here. And the God who made them, who walked with them and talked with them now says, Where are you? Now, this is not to suggest that God had actually genuinely lost them. It's not as if he said, "No, I'm sure I had Adam here somewhere. I see I appear to have misplaced him. It's not that kind of question that's going on here. Instead, having arrived at that place of meeting, man's not there. There is now a separation. There is a chasm between them. This is a cry of a broken heart saying, where are you? And Adam's response? I heard you and I hid. Having heard the voice of God, the creator, the one he's walked with, the one he's served, the one who breathed life into him, having heard his master's voice, he hid. And caught under the stare of this offended God, he tries to shift the blame in verses 12 to 13. But I want you to note the direction Of the blame. I wanted to note the the, the audacity, the temerity of his accusation because he actually blames God. He points to the woman and, in castigating her as a villain, omitting his participation note, he quickly asserts, The one you gave me is to blame. And then the woman, of course, turns to blame the serpent, the creation of God. It's not her fault the blame lies elsewhere. She says, I was deceived. That perhaps she genuinely thought that she would be like God, an equal, able to decide good and evil with them. But there's no deception over knowing full well that it was wrong. The serpent never said they were allowed. He questioned the motives, the goodness of God. They knew they shouldn't do it, and their belly left them there standing, broken, marred creatures. There's no deception over the command. The deception is the delusion that they would be equal to God. And on this she was deceived, and on this mankind has been deceived ever since. Now there's going to be further consequences. We are Having broken creation, the sharp edges of those shattered pieces are going to hurt. The fields are going to resist. The childbearing will be immeasurably painful. And yet even into this, God can't help being God. In the middle of the consequences, entirely deserved consequences of their action, God provides grace. Now, this is a theme that we see uh, particularly in Genesis 1 to 11, but throughout. You know, when, when Cain is a murderer, God provides the grace of the mark that will keep him safe. <laughs> When, 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 when we see throughout, when the people of God fail, we see, yes, there are consequences, but God is gracious. So too here. I find it quite incredible that we see this gracious act of God. Um, he acts in a number of ways here to show his grace. I find it amazing. But we do catch a glimpse of who he is when he acts in this way, when he has been offended. I mean, let's be honest, he would have been well within his rights to say, right, be gone, I never want to have anything to do with humanity ever again. Uh, He would have been well within his rights to simply wipe them out and start again. He does not. Despite the fact that we have humanity here destroying everything, ruining creation, rejecting God, refusing to accept him as the sovereign one, dismissing the relational one, he says to the man It's going to be hard Buy the sweat of your brow And then the grace of God But you will eat ah. Amazing Into the middle of the consequences We see the grace of God In verse 16 to the woman There is pain in the bearing of children uh, Notice I say in, in the bearing of children I realise I'm a man It's mostly observational um, But uh, the the Hebrew, and I think the English, it says uh, uh, has more than one word here. It's really important. It's it's not just simply that the childbirth itself is going to hurt, but everything to do with the bearing of children. Uh, The way that that, that your back is probably going to be wrecked for the rest of your life. The fact that your body is no longer going to be the same. The fact that you will probably be in pain uh, for many of the days for the rest of your life. In actual fact, everything to do with childbirth, even if you've not even had children, can be painful. All of it, the whole package. But in the midst of childbirth, we've got a really interesting uh, statement. Uh, uh, verse 16 is really interesting. Um, the Greek, which influences our translations a lot, uh, largely says uh, that the man needs to uh, come in and uh, dominate. Uh, the Hebrew, feels feel, a little bit more appropriate in the context of childbirth when it says, and it's more literal, um, you will reach out for your husband and he will protect you. Remarkable. You see that in the middle of the pain, God is gracious. Uh, the dominating word, mashal, um, it it's the action of a king, and so therefore that's where we get the idea of ruling in some of our translations. However, um, uh, the Greeks, who largely thought of that, they thought, what does a king look like? <laughs> and so they looked at their own petty despots, <laughs> they looked at some of their own stories and myths and legends and thought, we know what a king is supposed to be like. That's not how God saw a king. That's not what an Old Testament king was supposed to be like. That's not what we're supposed to be like when we reflect God and instead the role of protecting something that is valuable or vulnerable. And I think either would work in the context of childbirth. Um, That's not a consequence. This is part of the grace of God. The idea that in your greatest anguish you will not be alone. He cannot help but be God. He cannot help but show grace. And he's not done. That's not the end of the grace. There's a lot of grace being shown in this chapter. Verse 15 is pivotal to understanding the grace of God and the promise of the Messiah to come. Hope in what is a terrible and bleak context. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will break your head and you will break his heel. Uh, This promise of the uh, skull crusher is an offer of hope. There is going to be a solution. There will rise one born as a human who will vanquish the enemy, one who will inflict a fatal wound at the expense of a wounded heel. You know, the breaking of the head in the context of the fall gives us the first glimpse of a plan a plan that was there from the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, a plan that will lead to the cross. Now, with this first promise regarding Christ comes the guarantee that Satan's grip of man will be destroyed, that the hold of death and sin brought in at this moment will be obliterated. But it comes at a price. And obviously it gets developed Later on, it gets developed with every passing chapter. Eventually, we know it's not just simply one that is born of a woman, but God Himself, born of a woman, will come and will defeat Satan, take away the consequences ultimately of sin and death. So, Adam grasps onto this promise, this wonderful grace of God. He takes it with both hands and he turns to the woman and calls her Chavah, oh, Eve. It's a really important name because Adam from this moment is synonymous with death. But Chavah means life. And even then, God's not finished. (laughs) Even then, the grace of God that seems to motivate him in his actions towards man continues into verses 21 to 23 and provides the most tender demonstration of who he is as he goes on to clothe them. The hands that will carry the scars, the hands that will have wounds inflicted on them at Calvary because of what they have done, dresses them. Um, Literally, again, the Hebrew says, he dressed them like little children. Uh, There's there's an extreme tenderness in the terms that are being used to describe the actions of God. Grace. Grace in the face of the consequences of sin. So Genesis 3, uh, it provides the the cause of the fall, the consequences from the fall, and yet, I hope you see hope despite the fall. It means that as strange as it sounds, in actual fact, when we read this chapter and we realize what is going on, and we see that they're not allowed to eat from the tree of life, that in the grace of God, he makes sure that that is not going to be their future. We find that death is a completely unnatural interloper into the experience of humanity. That was not part of God's creation. It arose after the fall. And I'm sure we know all too well the violent thief of hopes and dreams. You know, now we do experience the cruel nightmare of having our loved ones ripped away. And yet, even in death, we find hope. Through death and resurrection, first of Jesus Christ and then ourselves, we have hope. As the psalmist wrote in in Psalm 17 verse 15, "For as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake, and I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Instead of being doomed to be separate from God forever, there is a point in the future where we will return to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can look forward to a time when we awake in righteousness. Awake and see his perfect, smiling face. In the context of grief, we know we have a God who wipes away the tears. Tears caused by our rebellion. Tears, though, that will be wiped away and never needed again. And so, yes, whilst we need to shed tears now, We have hope. We have hope because here, in the earliest part of the Old Testament, we see Christ. Christ who who provides grace to those who do not deserve it and continues to do so. Grace in the midst of a life damaged by the consequences of their actions. Same for us again. Again. Grace, because there's the promise of a solution, the promise of the incarnation, the promise of the cross. Grace leading to hope and the resurrection, that moment when death is ultimately defeated, so that we know that death, that could not hold on to our Savior, cannot hold on to us. We see here grace and hope in the hands that one day will bear the scars on the cross, tenderly dressing the naked, Hands that even now offer to cleanse us, to dress us in robes of righteousness. So because the Christ seen here in the Old Testament is the same Christ that we read about and did read about this morning in the New Testament, the same Christ that we can testify about in our own lives, well, he is the same Christ who one day will welcome us home in glory. So as bleak, As Genesis 3 is, it is the beginning, the foundation of the hope that each and every one of us can hold on to because we no longer live in a garden. We shed all too many tears, but we know that the same hands that dressed these people, dressed Adam and Eve, that were nailed to the cross, those same hands will wipe away our tears. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we read this text, and we see grace for those who do not deserve it. It gives us joy and it gives us hope. It gives us assurance because as we come to you, we know that we receive grace, though we do not deserve it. When we see lives marred by the consequences of their foolish decisions, Lord, we find assurance. Because we too find grace despite our foolish decisions. We see these two naked and broken people, Lord, being dressed by your hand. We thank you and praise you that you dress us in robes of righteousness, robes that you provided that we could never have managed to take by our own hands. And so, Lord, though we continue to be rebellious, continue to imagine that we could be like God, we praise you that we have hope, not in ourselves, not in anything that we might seize by our hands, but because we are in your hands. Lord, let us live a life that reflects that, I pray. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.